This is Planted, a podcast that encourages us to be rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ and established in the faith. In today's podcast, God continues to demonstrate his desire to dwell among his people in covenant to show his light to the whole earth. Hello everyone, it's Pastor Matt Grimm. I'm here once again with Thad Keenel. We're presenting the Planted Podcast. How are you doing today, Thad? I'm doing good. It's good to be here. How are you doing yeah. today? Doing all right. Doing all right. I hope that today I can speak cl- more clearly. Well, you know, we uh, we do this podcast as a conversation, right? typically. We, uh, we sometimes have about three words for an outline. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, you know, we we know the important things that we want to speak about. And one thought always leads to another, you know, because it's just such an incredible topic that we're dealing with. And it, it happens when you're talking about the Bible with, with friends, you know, and people that love the, the, the word of the Lord. It's just, right. it's very exciting. And so, um, you know, we get it. But hopefully people understand that this is a conversation and, and you know, not everything has to be perfectly concise or completed. I mean, right. we, we, we try to, and uh, we're going to get to better of that, I think, uh, today. I hope so. I listened to the podcast uh, uh, earlier, and I was frustrated with myself. For, I thought I did exceptional. You did. You did. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but I, there were several times that I did not complete a sentence because I jumped ahead to the next thought in my mind, and I tried to do this thing last podcast where I worked backwards instead of forwards. So went from, we asked the question, why Abraham? And I tried to work backwards from Abraham to Adam. And as I listened to it, I was not satisfied with the clarity that I hoped to have presented. So quickly, let's try to start from Adam and get to Abraham as a review. Uh, just quickly, and, and try to do it with some complete thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, so uh, the overall thesis of what we're wanting to try to present here in helping us define how the Bible looks at the people of God and Israel. So we're trying to see who is Israel. And we started with Jacob because that's where the name Israel is first presented and he is the father of the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes, which we'll get to in a few episodes probably because yeah, right. we're going to jump ahead to Exodus sure. today. But to get there, we asked, um, we saw that Jacob is after Isaac and after Abraham, and they their similarity in the promises passed on to each one in their travels, in, the, in, in what they do as they're in the land, establishing this relationship with God and worshiping him. And we saw that Israel means to uh, God strives. And 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 so is God struggling with striving with the people? Are the people striving, struggling with him? It's probably both. Both and. Uh, So we have this um, sense of that you have this divine desire, this divine, divine will and grace given that he could wrestle with Jacob and not destroy him, but also this 
human responsibility and his human will involved too of, of Jacob not letting go, you know. And so, and in that, you know, we see the grace of God in 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 this because there's nothing really all that great about Jacob. Well, himself. that's the whole thing, um, right? We have. We have Israel, and this right. is what we're talking about. We are talking about a nation called Israel. We also have this land implication that we're going to right. be getting to, right? And so um, working our way from Israel and trying to find out the derivation of the name or the origins of the name, which we, right. we started with, as you just said, and working our way back, um, it's not that these people were seeking God out the, per se. It's that God sought them out and and created a covenant with these people under his right. own purposes. Right. So it's a yeah. it begins in a, with a covenant that right. he makes really outside of time that that re- covenant of redemption or that eternal covenant that we speak of and then when he creates Adam which is considering Adam and Eve the, the two of them together right. are, are is mankind, right? Is a covenant with them. And then it, it just goes on and that's why that process repeats. You say they kind of experience the same process and it's like God's way is always perfect. So when he shows somebody the next time what he's what he's going to do, he's going to show them the same thing <laughs> pretty yeah. much, right? Because, you know, you're going to follow me and these are the directions that I'm going right. to give you. And of course, in our humanness and our flesh as we all would, we would all we would all miss at certain points right. and even sometimes purposefully or 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 stray away because we think our way might be better than God's. Yeah. And so what God is doing with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and then Jacob's 12 sons is his desire is to have a people for himself that would bear his name, worship him, and bring up and become a blessing to the whole earth and to the nations. And so we asked why Abraham. Well, because humanity, who God originally created in in the for the entire world, had rebelled against him. And so I did it from backwards to forwards. I want to try to do it forwards to backwards. This, I mean, forwards to Abraham. This time is that what we have in Genesis one to eleven, because Abraham's called in Genesis twelve, is we have three fall accounts in these uh, chapters. Uh, we have, and so in Genesis one and two, when God creates the entire cosmos, Genesis one, and at the height of that creation story, the the climax is the creation of mankind who are made in his image to be his representatives on earth to carry on this project, we'll call it, of God dwelling with the people. Genesis 2, we have the establishment of a particular region called Eden. And within that region, he plants a garden. And in the center of the garden are these trees. And one is the tree of life. One is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And mankind is given a choice. Um, Are you going to uh, trust in God and eat from the tree of life and find wisdom and, and complete this project of working and keeping the garden and expanding it into the entire earth, filling it and subduing it? Or are you going to do it in your own wisdom, eat from your own the own tree and try to become God yourself? Right. Um, and I don't want to convolute anything or, or go too too broad, but do you think it's important that we make mention that Adam— was acting as a priest inside this Eden area, and it's a temple area because it's the dwelling of God, right? Right. He's there's 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 yeah. there's God in the presence of this of right. this area, so it's it's really a temple area. So the priest venue kind of at last on every one of these applications. Exactly. As well. there, I would say that we have both priestly and kingly language. So there's uh, kingly language in the sense of having ruling over and subduing from Genesis one. 
And you have priestly language in Genesis 2 of working and keeping the garden, which is the same language of the tabernacle and the temple of the Levites were to work and keep the garden Mm -hmm. of the temple or the garden of the tabernacle represented of God's dwelling, that holy place where God dwells with his people. Again, emphasizing that God wants to dwell with his people and he's able to dwell with the people as the people represent him as his rulers who rule on his behalf and who serve in the temple on his behalf, which I argue with other theologians um, that the the goal of all of creation was that it in its entirety would become the temple of God. Mm-hmm, right. Okay. So what we see then in the rebellion of, of Adam and Eve is that um, this spiritual being <laughs> comes in the form of a serpent um, who's wanting to test and tempt them, and they give in to that. They don't rule over this beast as they should. Okay, And then we see from Genesis 4 to Genesis 6 this struggle of, of mankind not ruling over as they should. So Cain, in killing of his brother, before he does that, he is encouraged by God to, to master this temptation, to master sin is crouching at your door. Right, just kind of like a, a serpent would, you know, potentially, and you had to master it. He doesn't, and and so the 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 effects of the first fall grow greater. We we see that even more with like one of his descendants, Lamech, right, who just becomes of a beast of a man who's killing people, and he becomes a king through the power and threat of the sword, mm-hmm. right, which leads us into Genesis six, where we see even before Genesis six. Leading up into that, we see that it is that this plight has is um, reaching into to all uh, the the earth to some degree, uh, and then uh, there's coming this setup for this catastrophic proportions of of this, which then in Genesis six we have this the sons of God marrying the daughters of women. We have this transgression, we would say, along with Dr. Heiser and others, that these are spiritual beings who are transgressing their realm, where they're given authority right. and the divine counsel to be able to rule with God in that realm. They're transgressing into the earthly realm, and, and we're seeing just the expansion of the rebellion of man and the spiritual beings coming together, and the, the whole earth is is now filled with the evil of God instead yeah. of the glory of God. Right. right? We've come we've come to the point where all mankind is right. is wicked and yeah. you know, thinking of those things and there's only one righteous right. family left. It appears right. that and it doesn't mean that he's sinless, but that he's in covenant living in covenant with God at this time. And so I, I just want to read this little paragraph here with some conciseness <laughs> um, to to set this up a little bit more uh, where It says, the opening line of the chapter, this is six, indicates that the scope of the narrative has extended. The story that began with a couple, Adam and Eve, and continued through familial lines, Cain, Abel, and Seth, now affects all of humanity. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground, Genesis 6-1, but the narrator extends the storyline one step further by including the sons of God perhaps suggesting that the entire cosmos has been engulfed by and enshrouded in the destructive nature of sin. 
The emphasis on sin in the passage is intensified as language of 6-2 recalls the garden scene in Genesis 3. The sons of God saw, Ra, that the daughters of men were good, Tob, just as Eve saw, Ra, that the fruit was good, the Hebrew word Tob. And then, just as Eve took the fruit from the tree, thus disrupting the order established by God, so too the sons of God took, the same Hebrew word there, the women for themselves, suggesting once again a rupture in the divine order of creation. Genesis 6-5 provides a summation and interpretation of Genesis 6-1-4, while also serving as a prelude to the flood narrative. The the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth. And that's from a biblical theology of um, the story of Israel. So all this to set up, hopefully we see that God's desire to dwell with his people um, is being transgressed by people wanting to be godlike and and spiritual beings wanting to be you know human kings and rulers in, in some way. Right. And, and so that's the problem that God has to address. Okay? That how is he going to deal with this sin and rebellion? What's he going to do to restore what was lost in Genesis 3, Genesis 6, and then we also said in Genesis 11, we have the same thing with the Tower of Babel. Right. And before you go there, um, did you make mention in the uh, the fall of Adam and Eve, did you make mention of a redemption account? We did, I didn't hear in this summary, right? I think we did okay. last time right. with the Proto-Evangelium of Genesis 3.15. We were talking about that if it came through. <laughs> right. So in these, in these three falls that you're talking about in these, in these Genesis yeah. account, it, it's, you, you have the fall of man, but immediately after, you see the, the grace and mercy of God and a redemption and the atonement of the covering of the animal skin. Yeah, so we mentioned that last week right. if, if it came through in a full sentence. <laughs> <laughs> right. The, 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 before God cast them out of the garden, he did cover them. So we have the animal uh, skins. So there was a covering. We see the grace there of, of God um, covering their sin. And in, in Genesis 3.15, he promises the seed of the woman— Right, who would crush the head of the serpent? Right, uh, and so uh, even though the serpent would nick at his heel, so looking forward to the cross. So we see God has a plan there, and so therefore the, this genealogy becomes very important all, all along the way. Right. And then in the the the, the fall account of um, Noah, Noah's time of Noah's time in Genesis six, we have the flood, and so we have a decreation of of God trying to cleanse the earth. Right, and then a recreation. So we have again this hope of redemption through Noah and his seed, right? That will potentially lead to this. Right, and and the imagery that the New Testament gives to the flood is that of baptism because yes. they're, they're saved through water. Right, and so we see this right. again the, the redemption being right idealized in in the grace of God because the ark is the place of protection. Right, yeah, and the water washes away that that whole symbolism because that chaotic stuff that's taken care of the rest right. of it. And now, as now as you said, now we're moving into the table of nations, and we're getting into the the next account. Yes, so we're asking the question: Oh, maybe one of Noah's sons is the answer. Okay, but we have we don't we didn't talk about this last week. We're not going to take time. But this whole we know Noah's not. There's this whole strange story about. You know the uncovering of 
Noah's nakedness, and the, we could spend six podcasts on that. We're not going to. <laughs> no. But the point is, is that out of the descendants of Noah, uh, we talked about how Abram comes from Shem, which is the whole name issue, which is some, you know, I think, godly irony that is that is coming out of the fact that at the Tower of Babel, the people are trying to make a name for themselves. They're saying, let us build this stuff as opposed to when God made humankind, let us make him in our image. They're trying to, in some senses, invite God down to this you know, ziggurat that they've built or whatever, but they're doing it for their own selfish purposes. Let's they're make not, a name for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. They're not filling the earth. They're, they're staying and hoarding themselves around one city. You know, you would imagine like building walls and trying to take control of the project of creation under their authority, their wisdom for their name, instead of doing it for the glory of God. And so God- It's interesting, besides making a name for themselves, it says in verse four of chapter 11, um, he says, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. It's exact opposite of what God has called them to. Exactly, exactly. And so he ends up scattering them. Right, and according to the Deuteronomy 32 passage, which we didn't look at, but we referenced last time, uh, talking about that's when God assigns the sons of God, the Bnei Elohim, to the nations. But He takes one nation for Himself, and that is Israel. Jacob and his allotment, right. right? Which is Israel. Which is we will get to that, and I want us to get back even to the end of Genesis with the blessing of, of Israel's sons, Jacob's sons. But before we go there, I, what I would like us to do is look at what God does with the nation of Israel after he rescues them. Because I think this, again, keeps with the theme of a fall of this God's divine choice to call a people to himself and a rebellion that, that subsequently follows. Because uh, I think that continues to help us understand this, the whole narrative of the Bible, the whole storyline of the Bible is God choosing and trying to have a people for himself. And, and you have the will of the people wrestling, striving against that at, in some ways, just as Adam and Eve did, just as the, the sons of God did in Genesis 6 and the people of Babel did in Genesis 11. We're going to see here in God's rescue plan for all of creation— in the calling of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now we have Jacob uh, setting up Exodus 19. We have Jacob and all his sons and their descendants, which have now grown into a multitude, which he promised that he would do that. Even with Abraham, they become a great nation. They have, but they're under the thumb of, of Egypt. So God is rescuing them out of slavery in Egypt. He has taken them, he's defeated the, the Egyptian gods. He's brought them through the, the, the Red Sea um, into, into freedom, into the wilderness. And uh, in Exodus 19, he, they're, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai where God is uh, deciding he's going to come down and descend upon Mount Sinai. Not that he lives at Sinai, but this is just the place where he decides he's going to come down and meet with them. And he's going to invite them into a covenant relationship with himself here at Exodus 19. So anything else you want to add to that as we as we come to to the foot of Sinai? No, I don't think so. I mean, let's let's move let's move forward. I was I think you mentioned 
the the whole aspect of them being in bondage. But there was a time where Jacob's son Joseph was in like a very high position of power right. for Egypt. And after he dies, the new Pharaoh that comes in, they kind of forget about right. all of that, right? And so they're like, these these Israelites are, are growing out of control. And that's when they put them into the slave ship and under the subjection of their authorities and stuff like that. But once again, like you said already, that God sees his people, that he is, they're lost on their own, right? Right. And it takes God to reach out and pull them out of Egypt. And like you said, he conquers the gods. And we have that we have one more baptism experience going the crossing of the Red yeah, Sea. Right. Right. That whole thing. They're coming into a the the, yeah. the decreation, new recreation aspect on the other side of the um, Red Sea right. that takes place. And so now here we go and we're gonna go up into the mountain. Right. Yeah. So again, we might spend some more time going back and reflecting on Jacob's twelve sons and how they got in Egypt at some point, but for the sake of this divine will and human um, wrestling element and, and the falls, we want to jump to Exodus 19 to look at this. Um, and then on, we'll try to get to 32 <laughs> today too. So here they are. They've come out of Egypt. Uh, they have been journeying in the wilderness for a little bit. And we and in this, we have, um, you know, they even there's some pre-grumbling that's already taking place here in Exodus up to this point in terms of we're hungry. They're wondering, is, is Egypt better? You know, and God God gives them water from the rock. He gives them manna from heaven. Um, all of this leading up to this, they finally uh, get to Sinai. And it says here, starting in verse 1, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. So I'm going to stop right there and just notice here we have both terms, the house of Jacob and the people of Israel. That's one, it's the same thing. They're, they're synonymous with each other, right? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Divine initiative, right there, right? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Oh, notice some very important things happening <laughs> A lot here. being said. That's okay. a mouthful, yeah. So the redemption of Israel out of Egypt, God's initiative, we could say they were saved by grace, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, as a result of that salvation in God's initiative, he's inviting them into a covenant relationship. And that covenant relationship has some stipulations to it, okay? If you will indeed obey my voice, okay? They're already rescued, they're already saved, and now he says, I'm entering covenant, and, and your job is to obey my voice. Think back to the garden. God creates Adam and Eve. He plants a garden for them. He provides everything they need when he puts them in that garden. And then he says to them, if you, if you, don't, if you don't eat from this tree, 
it's going to go well with you in the land, basically, right? <laughs> right. And so um, now, then the second half of this, this says, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Again, God's taking a people for himself out of the nations, okay, to be his inheritance or his treasured possession. But the reason he gives for that is, he says, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I believe the implication is there, I'm choosing you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, back to the blessing of Abraham, of, of Abraham, it, because this is, he's back to his whole earth project. He, he still has in mind the whole earth right. in the choosing of a people to himself in a nation, which from Sinai, they're supposed to go into the land of, of promise, which is, I believe, the starting point of blessing the whole earth and all the nations, right? Sure. And so we see that here. He says, for all the earth is mine. And then he says to, to Moses, these are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay? So again, there is this universalness. There's a universality in God's intentions with the people of Israel here of the whole earth. When we think about the land, um, uh, be thinking about the entirety of of the earth that I think is important. Yeah, right? you know, and this is all happening really quick. You, the very first thing that you stated in verse one, it says in the third month. You know, and the idea of this being the third month, it's like the third month from what? Well, the third month from Exodus twelve, right, where he says this is the first month unto you, and then they have the Passover, which is on the fourteenth, and we see the Exodus takes place after that. So they're not. They're not in this wilderness for too long before right. we're, we're addressing this. Here we are maybe only two months at the most before this, and we're going to find out that you know the whole giving of the, the law takes place on what we come to know as, as the Pentecost, 50 days after right. the, the, the Sunday after the Passover. That's right. So it's, it's really happening fast, and these are all shadows of Christ. So just one more thing to keep in mind, the, the, God is really neat at weaving – through the messianic yeah. message the entire time. Right, and that's again why I want to emphasize that this whole narrative of the Pentateuch in particular, but also I, we, would, we would carry that into the whole of Scripture. It's telling a story, and how the story is told. We would agree that these are true things, that these aren't made-up events, they are true events. But it's being told in a particular way to help us see that this relationship of the people of God to God is related to worship. Just like there's worship language in Genesis 2, which you brought mm. up, you know, in terms of the temple and the, the priesthood and all of this. Even I would I would say even in the the three realms of Genesis 1 that are then filled with with people give us clues in terms of times and seasons that they're to worship in certain ways, even what they're to eat and not eat and things like that. Sure. All go back to those ordered relationships God has has given them. And so here, the same thing with the timing of the Passover and the timing of when they come and get to the law is all establishing things and how they are to worship God in the land, um, when they're to have the festivals, what they represent, what they signify is God's efforts, God's initiative to have a people for himself who represent him 
to the nations, right? Yeah. So no. that narrative scope is so important. Right. Yeah. It's more than just a history lesson. It's it's about it's all about God's redemption, right? Now you're you're coming into a verse that every time I, I see it. I, I can't do anything but chuckle to myself, and that's going to be verse 8. So <laughs> as Moses called the elders to the people in verse 7, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're going to talk about this, right? Well, go ahead. Yeah, you're there. Let's do it. So verse 7, it says, Moses came and called all the elders of the people and set before them all these words which Yahweh had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean... That's a great intention. They like they like what they're hearing, right? But they've been doing all this grumbling beforehand. Yeah. They came out and then they grumbled, and we know what's coming and not yeah. too long, right? Okay. So it's just a, right. Our, what is it about our our intentions? <laughs> we have good intentions. I mean, think about your wedding day, right? You took vows on your wedding day. Did you take? The, did you and and Tanya have the traditional vows? We did pretty traditional okay, vows. Yeah, yeah we, we had pretty... actually a really strange wedding because I was raised Roman Catholic, right? Oh, right. And um, she was actually Episcopalian, mm-hmm. and um, which is kind of like an Anglican sure. type of thing, right? And so now even though I had been branching out away from Catholicism at the time, you when you're Catholic, you don't get married unless you get mar- married in a Catholic ceremony, right? So we you actually want to keep the peace with the parents. Yeah, the, the, well, that's that's really what it comes down to, <laughs> <laughs> and not that it would have been the end of the world for right. our media, my mom and them, but right. the rest for sure. So we actually had um, in the Anglican Church um, their pastor, but we had. And his name was Pastor Bulger. And the reason I remember that is because he looked like the Scarecrow, <laughs> Ray Bulger from The Wizard of Oz, right? And the guy had to be, he had to be 112 years old. And just, he was there just to be the symbol of the Catholic Church, right? Okay. But anyway, I said all that to say that it wasn't, it was traditional in the vows. Okay. You know, but the rest of it yeah. is uh, just hilarity. In the midst <laughs> of, a, of a, a blizzard that brought about 12 inches in three hours. Well, I bring up the vows because you know I took the traditional vows too. You know, and that we're going to be faithful to our to our wife. Our wife's going to be faithful to us. We're going to love each other in sickness and in health and right. in, in good times and in bad and all that. And in, in the big picture, you know, I hope I'm being faithful to that. But I also know that there are times I've broken that vow. You know, in the terms of I haven't always loved my wife as I should. I haven't always done that. We we come with the best intentions. You know, on that day, we come with the best intentions. And I'm thankful, you know, my wife and I, we've been married 29 years now. You know, so God is good to us, and we've been faithful to keep that. But there's a lot of people who come in with the best intentions, those marriage vows, and don't keep them at all, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, that's what we have here. This is This is a covenant. In you know, coming with the best intentions, and they're you know, just what did I say? What did the pastor ask me? Do you? And I was like, I do. Do you? Do you? Do you promise to do these things? And, and Julie said, I do. Right, and that's what's happening here. You know, God is saying, Do you promise to do this? And the people say, We do. Yeah, with well, the best intentions. Exactly. In fact, right? when the when the the pastor asked Tanya, Is it for better or for worse? And she said, For better. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. So, so that's what we have here, um, and so 
Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. I thought that that's very interesting. You know, we know God knows everything. Why does he need to why does Moses need to go back and report to him what they said? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing about God is that he not only, you know, ordains the the ends of his whole providence, but he ordains the means. Right. And that includes a people that he's calling unto himself. Right. And so there's a a ratification you could say. Um now we don't now we know back in the covenant with Abram there was this whole ceremony and, and the animals and the sacrifice of animals and the cut in half and walk through. We don't have that here, but there is later in the account they do um, you know, have blood sprinkled on them and all this, you know, they have this covenant meal and all this that's happening. So this is just the beginning here. But the promises are made before all that stuff happens, right? They're agreeing to this and then there's still kind of more formalization of things to come later. Uh, but in verse 9, After it says Moses reported this, the Lord says to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you. So again, here, God's desire to dwell with the people, to be there. I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that people may hear when I speak with you and you and may also believe you forever. So the, the desire here is for the people to endure in this relationship, right? God wants them to believe forever <laughs> these <laughs> words um, that are being spoken. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Okay. Now, Again, this is just loaded material here, uh, both for the present reality and for what's being established for the people in their worship practices, and even what we find for the rituals that the priests have to go through to serve in the temple, right? Mm -hmm. But then if we look ahead, when we, you know, on this side of the cross, when we hear the third day, that's significant for us, right? Right, yeah. So there's something... There's, there's the, like you said, a shadow of what's happening with Jesus that, that we know ahead. We're not going to necessarily go there today, but for this, what, what's significant about the entire pe- the entirety of the people having to go through this three day ceremony? Yeah, well, the consecration part is um, a word that kind of is harmonious with sanctification, and that's to be set apart. So, yes. So they have to. Because God is holy, you can't just come casually into the presence of the Lord, right? right. And this is what He's saying: I'm going to, I'm going to be doing this in front of them. So they have to be consecrated. They have right. to set themselves apart, get cleaned up, and be meditating, and 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 then they can come. Right. And when you're set apart, when you're consecrated, you are becoming devoted unto the Lord. Right. And in in one sense, when you do that you're kind of losing your life a little bit, right? I mean, in terms of like, if you're devoted unto the Lord, your life's no longer your own. It's devoted unto God, Um, which we would say is a good thing. But at the same time, there is a giving up of oneself for that. We, if you trust that the Lord is good and what he has for you in, in service unto him is, is all the best, and that's what we were made for in the first place, that's a good thing. But at the same time, if, if you're a sinful people, 
you know, if you're a descendant of Adam and Eve, <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. and and Noah and and all the rest, then there's the gosh, you know, that's that's kind of a that could be in some sense be a scary thing. Oh, I'm losing myself. Much less doing it to a god who's coming down in a cloud and <laughs> and is a frightful thing. So, I'm, I'm, what I'm setting up is the fact that what are the people thinking at this time? There again, is this initial response? We're going to do this now, like oh, maybe this is more serious than I thought it was, kind of a thing. So after he says that in verse twelve, so there's this whole interesting dynamic from here on out that there's there's not necessarily agreements among theologians, and I, I don't know that I have it fully resolved in my brain, is that is he invite at this point it appears as if everyone, if everyone's being consecrated, then everyone's being invited up, you know, at this point. But then it says in verse 12, you shall set limits for the people around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Oh, wow, now now we're getting really scary, okay? No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. Then it says, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So is this restriction at this point just for this three-day consecration period? That's how I'm reading it right now. That So this, right now what you're saying, the border is there strictly for the three days of consecration. Until the trumpets until blow. Until the trumpet blasts, and then... And then once the trumpet blasts, after they've been consecrated, made holy, and devoted themselves unto the Lord, when the trumpet blasts, okay, now we can all come up on the mountain and meet with God, okay? So Moses went down from the mountain of the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments, and he said to them, be ready for the third day, don't go near a woman. That's just part of the purification, you know, thing. So... Be ready, right? Don't go, be ready for these three days. Prepare yourself. Be ready when the trumpet blasts. Come on up, right? Yeah. So you know, I'm looking at just the Hebrew word there for for coming up, and it it does allure to the fact of ascending. So you you might be you might be right mm-hmm. in the fact that they are to ascend yeah. the mountain with with everybody, right? Right. So now that's now just so we're clear. I mean, we're talking about six hundred thousand people, <laughs> right? That could be going up. So, so or at least the men, at least the men, or at least representatives. But yeah, it the could elders, even be the priest, yeah. or the, yeah. So yeah, but, but at this point, at this point, it's not saying just the priests. It's, it's saying at least the elders. I would say. Well, and everybody was called to be a priest at, at exactly. One point, so that's the of, whole point. The whole nation's to be this, yeah. right? So do do representatives go up on behalf of the whole nation? That you know, that's an interesting thing, but. What we have on verse 16, on the, on the morning of the third day, thunder and lightning and a thick cloud is there. So this is a scary scene, potentially. You know, it's, I don't know, for some reason, you know, the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark's coming to mind, right? You know, when, when they go to open the, they go to, to open the Ark of the Covenant, right? Mm-hmm. You have all this, you know, fantastical stuff happening, right? It, the, the presence of the Lord is there, and He's appearing in a very, in an extremely visible and known way, right? Right. So um, now, but my sense at this point, back to the thesis that God wants to dwell with His people, the invitation is for all the people to come up because they're all to be a kingdom of priests, right? Or at least the representatives of all the people. 16, 
the thunders, the lightnings, the thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast. So here's the, the trumpet blast, the invitation, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Okay? So instead of all the people at the trumpet blast coming up, what they do is they tremble at this. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Okay. So the question is, are they supposed to? It's almost like they're taking their stand at the border that was set, Mm -hmm. okay? Not coming up. So are they being obedient or disobedient? That's the debate among among people. Some people say, no, they're being obedient because God set a border for them earlier. And the, But others will say, well, no, he set the border just for the three days when the trumpet blasts they are supposed to come up, right? So um, wrestle with that as, <laughs> as, you, as you read the scriptures here. Um, because here's what happens in verse 18. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, the smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So, you know, God's there. It's a scary thing to be in the presence of God, okay? Yeah. And he's described as an all-consuming fire. Yes. Right, which he now has consumed the entirety of the mountain. And yet, it said at the trumpet blast, come up. So, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and now it says the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So why only Moses? Is it because all the people are trembling? Um, is Moses the only one with the courage to come up? Is this um, the right thing or the wrong thing? We don't know. I mean, this, this is the question. Because then in verse 21, there seems to be a change here. Because the Lord then says to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Mm -hmm. So also let the priests who came up near the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. Because now we have the introduction of priests here. Well, was the whole nation a kingdom of priests or weren't they? Yeah. Um, Well, that's what I was kind of asking, you know, um, in an earlier part of the discussion was – um, are the priests designated prior to this? Um, because, you know, the priesthood, priests in concept aren't a brand new thing here, right? We have the priest like Melchizedek with Abraham, you know, way before. Right. Um, and the priest of Midian uh, was like Jethro was a priest, I think. Was, uh, Moses' father-in-law, was a, he was a priest. Yes. So, so, we have, so we have the concept of priest. Um, and so it seems like it's a some type of particular vocation unto the unto the Lord or unto God's, <laughs> right? Well, yeah. So in the ancient Near Eastern peoples, they would be worshiping, um, right. and there would be priests. And and so, and, and God here is establishing the way, Yahweh is, is going to be establishing here in the Book of the Covenant the way to worship him, right? As right. he's already, as he already, we already have a prelude to that with the whole Passover. So let me ask this question because you've, you've, You've emphasized it some that perhaps in theory everybody was to go up because the Lord had called them to ascend, and but there was this boundary. So while they're consecrating themselves, they're to stay away mm-hmm. from the the mountain with those boundaries. But then when the trumpet sounds, they are to go up. But they don't do that. So what are the implications one way or the other on how it affects the reading of this? Right. Well, on the one hand. 
let's say they're not supposed to go up. And what we have in these commands afterwards is, is, the, is the verification of that. Um, then Moses is, is the representative. He's the one who can do this. And he's going to be, he in essence is the spokesman, the mediator mm-hmm. um, that's required. But why, but, uh, and so this is just kind of establishing that relationship. But on the other hand, if they were all supposed to go up, then they don't need a mediator to some degree. But yet, was that established? We skipped over Genesis, I mean, Exodus 3 and the whole calling of Abraham, and he's the, you know, of Abraham, of Moses, right? right? And he's the, and there's the whole fascinating discussion, which we haven't done on this podcast, of the opening of Moses' mouth and all that kind of stuff, right? So if you're interested in, there's a, there's a, there's a podcast, um, I think through the Bible Project um, on, um, well, there's one I know from the On Script podcast that is about- I'll look a, it up and we'll put it in the show notes. We'll put it in the show notes of a, a woman who did a thesis on this and the whole Moses as, as the image of God who's the spokesperson for the people. Uh, and so, and I forget where she lands on whether the people were supposed to go up or not. Uh, if she even addresses that. Why bring all this up? Uh, Hopefully not to confuse you. I'm trying to be more clear in this podcast. (laughs) The point is, God desires a people who represent him. He wants to dwell with the people. And if that's the case, is he inviting them up onto the mountain to commune with him, to be with him? And is there fear in some ways, we would say justifiable. There's lightning, there's thunder, the mountain's shaking, okay? Um, but are they supposed to, in faith, break through that fear and recognize this awesome God before them wants to be in this relationship with them, which he's invited them to be a kingdom of priests? Right. Now, I would, in my opinion, and certainly this is up for discussion or, or whatever, but my leaning is that where that boundary was set, that the intention was to never let them right. come up into the mountain. Right. I think I I think I see that, and I think it kind of comes out in verse twenty three to to some degree um, when Moses um, speaks back to Yahweh and he says the people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai for you warned us saying set bounds about the mountain right. and set it apart as holy. So there there was boundaries, and it doesn't seem like he's inferring that there was two different sets of rules going right. on there. So that. I mean, it all depends, and I don't, that's right. why I don't know if there's implications if you believe one way or the other or reading I don't it. know. I, I think it's interesting to work out. It because certainly is. It's interesting to work out because on one sense, this is a similar thing that you have happening with the tabernacle, right? So God dwells amongst the people in the camp, but there are boundaries at the tabernacle, mm-hmm. right, that only, only the Levites are allowed to come into the courts of the tabernacle, um, especially into the holy place, and then the holy of holy holies only the high priest, and that only once a year. So there's that whole thing looking forward that says maybe is this kind of a, establishing a similar kind of thing there of the holiness of God. Okay. However, the interesting thing, well, just to finish chapter nineteen, sure, it says um, in verse twenty three. The people cannot come up, as you said, set limits in the mountain and consecrate it. And then 24, the Lord said to them, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through the camp up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So is God going to break out against them? Is this a sign of his holiness? Yes. But is it also a sign of his, on the other side of your opinion, is it a sign of his anger that they were unwilling to come up? 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. So that that could be that. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So the, what I want to Jim jump to is then. So after this, we have chapter twenty where God speaks to Moses the the ten words, the Decalogue, the the ten commandments, and that's verses one to seventeen. And and all the people, my impression is he's speaking to Moses, but because the people are at the foot of the mountain, they can hear this conversation, okay, potentially. Because it says in verse 18, now when all the people saw thunder and flashes and lightning at the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off Mm. and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So were they hearing some of these words and they were afraid? I don't know. It, it's an interesting thing to consider. But well, I mean, if they indeed can hear and comprehend these words, what he's saying, um, first of all, if he's doing that and I'm standing there, I'm guilty of nine out of 10 of them maybe, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or eight out of 10 or whatever. I mean, well, in, in my heart, I'm guilty of all of them. Yeah. So there's, you know, that's scary if you're like, oh, if you're like, oh yeah, don't do this. It's... Um, so there's yeah. there's that potential. The other thing is, I mean, it, it's just a very dramatic moment. We got we got this thunder and these lightnings, right? Which the Bible is consistent with that as well with the judgments of God, right? Exactly. Yeah, I can't help but even think about Elijah and Mount Carmel later on, right? And you have the whole conversation with the the God of Baal, right? Who is a storm god, <laughs> right? <laughs> And so, um, you know, and so we see Yahweh here appearing himself in the storm, you know, mm-hmm. and Steph said, no, I'm the true God. Right. You know, and was there already Baal worship going on even in the time of Moses, potentially? Um, likely so, the Canaanites. So they're getting ready to go into the land of the Canaanites. Well, they just spent right? 400 years in Egypt where they're, they've got their gods. That, yeah, right. They're, so, so they're seeing this. So, yeah, there's so much, you know, potentially going on here. But in verse 18 of chapter 20, when they're seeing all this— and the sound of the trumpet, um, and they're afraid, and their their fear causes them to stand far off. Okay, and and they tell Moses, "No, you speak to us, and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us, lest we die." So, what's the narrator doing here? Is the is the narrator affirming the holiness of God, and the people are getting it, or is the narrator expressing that the people, is their fear a good thing or a bad thing here? That's that's the little bit of the debate that, that I think is going on. So in verse 20, then Moses said to the people, don't fear, for God has come to test you. Um, and that word there, test, is that, again, is that uh, is that a, a test that they are to pass, right? Um, and they And they fail it? Or is it is is it a test that they are passing by not going up the mountain? <laughs> you know, that becomes part of the question. He says, "Don't don't fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin." And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Okay, so then Moses goes up and gets more laws. Okay, at this point. We have, you know, some people would say, I think the, um, is this where the Book of the Covenant starts? Um, Well, he's going to go through a lot of that. He's also going to give them, you know, for the next several chapters, 
Um, he's going to give them all of the right, the like the civil laws and everything like that right. as well, the primary ones. And but he's also going to be giving them Moses a set of blueprints for the tabernacle. Yeah, but that comes that comes after the covenants confirmed in twenty four. So so in in twenty to twenty three, all these laws kind of about their how to live with each other uh, and so forth. And then we have the laws of the of the Sabbath and and some of the festivals. And then in in, in chapter twenty four. There's this, the covenants confirmed in this way. So there's an interesting thing happening here in 24 where come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel will, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. So then you have this group of, of 70 elders and, and some of the priests who come up a certain distance, they're still far. It's just an interesting dynamic here, but the rest of the people don't come up as far as them, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, um, what do they? What do they do? Well, Moses speaks the rules. They write down the words of the Lord and all all this kind of stuff. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, um, verse six or seven. And the Lord spoke with them. And they and again they agreed to be obedient. And Moses took blood and threw it on the people and said, "Behold, the covenant of the Lord He's made with you in accordance with these words." And then the elders go up and they have a meal. And then after that, then we get the the rules of the sanctuary, the contribution for the sanctuary, the Ark of the Covenant, and and all the things that go in the tabernacle. Okay, and the tabernacle is where God dwells with the people. Okay, so it just. I, I'm wrestling with all this, trying to figure out what's the whole idea of the coming up and being near and and more more covenant obligations and agreements and so forth. I haven't worked out all the details of all this, except I think as is often we've, we've said this for the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. We 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 cannot deny that God is is establishing this this relationship with His people. And he's giving opportunity for them to be in his presence and for him to dwell with them, right? That we see that that is happening even with the establishment of the tabernacle and and all this that's coming even after this um, Exodus 24 covenant ratification. Right. And we're also seeing that there's no remission of sins without blood shed. Right. You know, this is the whole idea of of, of the blood. There's a purifying uh, sense to 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 the blood. And this is the only account in the Old Testament where we hear of them being sprinkled. It only mm-hmm. happens this one time where the people are actually sprinkled with the blood. And that's not mentioned again until right. the New Testament, like Hebrews or, or Peter somewhere as yeah. well, because um, we've been sp- sprinkled by the blood of Christ. So, you know, this, again, the imagery is going to wind all the way through. Right, right. And so the rest of, of after the, after Exodus 24, so we have the... The initial commitment of all the people in, in Exodus 19, this whole weird thing is, were they all supposed to go up or not? Well, in Exodus 24, only the, the chief priest and his, and being Aaron, you know, and his sons go up, and then the, the elders, the, 70s, yeah. the 70 elders, okay? And then following that, we have the rest of the law following that is all really, at that point, all about the tabernacle, 
right? Up yeah, until I'm sorry, we get- I just I just heard you, this, the word seventy just got into my mind again. I mean, when Jesus sends out first the disciples, then he sends out right seventy, seventy, right? And so again, symbolically, seven in the Bible is the sense of wholeness, completion, fulfillment. Even think of the seventh day of creation, mm-hmm. God rests, and then seven times ten is even a greater extent of that. So we see. You know, kind of this multiplying effect that Israel is supposed to have right. as representative of to all the nations potentially, right? Or we get the sense of the fullness. The seventy elders is a it's a complete number in some sense, is representing all the whole nation in that way. Right. Which twelve tribes does that. Twelve is a similar number, but here we have the seventy. You know, which is it was interesting to think about. Sure. But but then so we have after this again we have all these regulations coming down that, that are being received in Exodus 25 to 31 that have to do with God dwelling with the people, with the tabernacle and the 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 the, uh, the priests and how they are cared for and and how they're set apart and um and and so forth. Uh, and then and then in the all in the Sabbath regulations and things like that. And so he gave all this to Moses, and then in verse 31, verse 18, it says, He gave to Moses, when he'd finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone written with the finger of God. You said verse, but you meant chapter 31? Chapter 31, verse 18, I'm sorry. Yep. So we have the end of this, that he, he's, he's gotten all instructions for the tabernacle and laws of, that they're to follow for worship. And so covenant with the people— we have the representatives going and ratifying that covenant, and we have all these instructions on how God can is going to dwell with them and how they're to worship him. Okay. Which gets us to, to Exodus 32. Wow. So, you know, you did really good. I tried to take you off track a couple of times, and you just kept bringing it right back to, to your line. So, well, I tried to finish my sentences. You did today finish your too, sentences, and I but was... I don't think we didn't get to the, but it took us a while. And now we here are to the Exodus 32 account, which maybe we next time we'll we'll get into the fall. Well, there's a boundary. We're not allowed to go past that boundary that's set up <laughs> just yet. You know? yeah. So we'll have to we'll have to wait in joyful anticipation until right. next time. But Exodus time. 32 is Moses comes down from the mountain, okay, and and the people are already you know breaking the covenant, right? And so. Uh, but it's but it's an interesting account, and maybe maybe we'll even get into this whole opening of Moses' mouth thing. Maybe we should address that a little. Well, bit. Well, maybe you know that's why but, this took a little bit longer, right. so so we can spend some time on that and talk right. about how that ancient Near East mindset. Yeah, but to set up next time, hopefully, what we see here in Exodus nineteen up to this point again, and why why I wanted to wrestle with should the people have gone up or not. And and we have the Moses as the representative, and we have the priests, and we didn't even get into all the regulations of the tabernacle. But the overarching theme again is that God is He's establishing a nation for Himself to rescue the whole world, and God wants to dwell with His people. But for God to be able to dwell with the people who have time and time again showed themselves to be sinful and rebellious, he's giving instructions that set up the fact that he's a holy God. And to be in his presence, for his presence to be with the people, there are certain rules, regulations, stipulations 
that are in place, not to protect God from sin, <laughs> but to protect the sinful people from his, from holiness. his holiness. So I think that's very important as we as we lead into into Exodus 32 when he comes down, that in some senses what we have is an attempt of the people to worship. They they want they there's this desire to worship, but they're not necessarily doing it the right way, which you even wonder is, is there a similarity between this and the Tower of Babel, you know, um, even in the sense that they, they're building this tower, but for what purpose and what reason? And then what's the thing here? I think we see, has there been some progress here or not? We can, we can, we can well, ask that and question. And again, this is, the, this is the common problem with us is that we're not patient to wait on God mm-hmm. when he's, he's called us to something, right? And we even see this in the New Testament after Jesus died, he, he told the disciples to wait um, for, for him, right? Yeah. And Peter does it for about 20 minutes. He says, I'm going fishing. <laughs> you know, who's with me? Yeah. You know, and so the, the, the aspect of, of waiting, he's, he gets impatient and goes back to his old day job, you know, I think. And there's, a, yeah. there's a, I mean, there's some other options there. But the human nature is very impatient, mm-hmm. right? God gives opportunities to trust him. Right. And um, he to, for the people of Egypt to trust him in the desert. And they're looking back and saying, let's go back. It was better when we were slaves, yeah. really. You know, so um, who's the true God? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thunderings from the mountaintop is one aspect where, yeah, well, as long as he's making noise, I'm going to respect that. But if, I, if I'm if i not quite hearing him as clear as I think I should, then, well, maybe I'll just go about my own business. So it's just our tendency. And so I think God keeps us very dependent on him. He shows us time and time again um, how weak we really are without him. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as, as we wrap this up today and we think about, um, that tendency that we have, I think one of the questions I need to ask myself is, do I desire to dwell with God? Because I think it's clear God desires to dwell with us. Do I want him dwelling with me or I, do I just want the benefits of having his blessings? Because I think at times I want all the benefits, but do I really want God in my business? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you well, know, and understanding the reality, um, the the priestly requirements for keeping that tabernacle so that they could dwell in the midst of a holy God, um, that tabernacle, the place where God dwells, that's what we are now. The reality is, how much care should we be taking as priests of our own, of the tabernacle where God dwells? That includes right. us individually and corporately as a church. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And 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 there are still, by God's grace, we have that, but there are still some terms uh, in which the, the, that come with that, right? Uh, and so nothing that we earn, you know, but there, but, but there's a... A reality to that, uh, and so, uh, and I think it, it goes back to the whole issue of, of um, even like, I'll, I'll ask the question today is of living in the land, on whose terms or, or, <laughs> or you know, on whose terms? Right. You know, I think is a good question. It's a good, question. good question to ask. So, all right. Well, um, I did not get where I wanted to get today. But I think we made some good progress, and I think we asked some important questions of the text. 
as we come along the way. And, and so we'll, uh, we'll deal with Exodus 32 next time. Yep, that sounds great. All right. See you then. All right. Have a good night. Next time, we will look into the infamous Golden Calf Incident and the implications described in Exodus 32. Planet is a Cornerstone EPC production, connecting to God, one another, and the world through the love of Jesus. More information can be found at cornerstonebrighton.com.